I still have no explanation for these events. What I do know, what I will go to my grave averring, is that with very few exceptions, the symptoms that I witnessed there were real. They may have been unpredictable in duration and presentation, but the illness underlying them all was the same, some strange alchemical interaction between our tortured psyches and our abused bodies, between the intolerable experiences we struggled to ban from our thoughts and the fragile physiques that fell victim to that struggle. Above all, though, it was real, just as the events that I lay out for you in these pages are real. They were improbable, incredible even, but they happened. I was immediately transfixed um, and found myself sort of pivoting and starting to, you know, figuring out who she was and where she came from. And welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustel, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Jennifer Cody Epstein, author of the novel The Mad Women of Paris. Also just absolutely riveting for so much of it. I mean, I, kept, I just kept discovering things that were absolutely fascinating to me, and that would sort of keep me going. Jennifer Cody Epstein is the USA Today best-selling author of the novel Wonderland. Some of her other works include The Gods of Heavenly Punishment, winner of the 2014 Asian Pacific Association of Librarians Honor Award for Outstanding Fiction, as well as the international bestseller The Painter from Shanghai. Epstein has written for The Wall Street Journal, The Asian Wall Street Journal, The Nation in Thailand, Self and Mademoiselle magazines, and the NBC and HBO networks, working in Kyoto, Tokyo, Hong Kong, and Bangkok, as well as Washington, D.C., and New York. Epstein has an MFA from Columbia, a Master's of International Relations from the John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, and a B.A. in Asian Studies English from Amherst College. She lives in Brooklyn, New York with her husband, filmmaker Michael Epstein, her two amazing daughters, and her exceedingly needy Springer Spaniel. Today, I'll be talking with Epstein about her new novel, The Mad Women of Paris. Uh, let's start with the Salpetrier Asylum. Can you give us um, a, a brief history, not well, of the asylum itself, but also of the facility of the building um, leading into the time period that you write about? Um, sure. It had been a very initially, um, it was a sort of a saltpeter. Um, repository for weaponry, which is where the name comes from. Um, it was turned, I believe, in the 17th century into um, a women's asylum uh, that was actually kind of a 
disposing grounds for all kinds of undesirable women. So um, the indigent and the poor, as well as the insane uh, and hysterical and oftentimes um, sort of other neurologically impaired women, uh, syphilis, uh, for instance, was another big disease. They were all just kind of warehoused there. And it, the conditions were notorious uh, during that period. It was really more like a big prison um, where they would chain people to the cells and they'd have dogs and the conditions were um, really terrible. Um, that all changed uh, at sort of the early part, late, 19, uh, late 18th and sort of early 19th century, um, there was a, another um, great sort of director slash um, sort of doctor named Pinnell who came in and um, instituted all of these much more humane um, policies. So he would, he took the, there's a very famous image of him taking the chains off of mad women uh, at, the, at the asylum. And he uh, sort of instituted a of approach that was much uh, more focused on trying to heal as opposed to simply contain. So he was uh, really sort of the beginning of, of a big transformation of the institution. Uh, Charcot came in, I believe, in the 1860s, and um, he uh, initially was, I think, only in the Hysteria Ward, um, but he ended up uh, sort of continuing this evolution of the institution into something that was much more sort of technologically modern. He uh, instituted, he, he put the epileptics and the hysterics into the same ward and then had uh, sort of the other uh, lunatics um, and other people in sort of different areas. He put in a number of treatment centers, uh, sort of the hydrotherapy units, as well as uh, he was playing around with sort of um, electrical stimulation. So that was something else that he was doing. Uh, he also began to give lectures there. His these lectures would become uh, very famous over the next several decades, and so it would culminate in the kinds of performances that I ended up uh, sort of making central to my novel. And um, I think after he passed away in 1894, the focus on hysteria in particular as one of sort of the areas of study there uh, really faded away rather abruptly, but it still continued to be a center for neurological study, and it still is known for its neurology department today. Uh, it's still in Paris now. You can go there, and some of the buildings are, are effectively unchanged from the outside, so um, that's pretty neat. You can walk around and sort of see, get a sense of what the old asylum might have looked like pretty easily, even as it today continues to be a modern-day teaching hospital. Let's talk a little more about uh, Dr. Jean-Martin Charcot, what what do you think about the influence he had on medicine and psychology, both at the time and and then you know following his his lifetime? Was it were, were there some positives and some negatives? Was it mostly negative? How would you articulate that? Oh, I think there was a lot of positive. I mean, he was by all accounts an absolutely brilliant man, and um, his approach to diagnosing uh, neurological disorders in particular was very groundbreaking. He was uh, one of the first to identify um, ALS, for instance, and Parkinson's. That was really how he kind of made his name. And uh, those, you know, a lot of diseases today um, continue to sort of, ALS uh, still has, uh, is, is named for him, as is, uh, there's a Charcot foot disorder as well. Um, so he's, he's, continued to be uh, very revered for a lot of the work that he did. Um, I 
found a lot less about him publicly and sort of in the record about the uh, his work with hysteria because I think it was sort of a part of his career that a lot of people were not as interested in in going in depth into because uh, I think it was it's generally seen as as a misstep at this point. Um, you know, but even you know within that framework, a lot of positivity actually came out of it. I think because he did mentor amazing other sort of up and coming doctors, including Sigmund Freud, who came into the Salpetrier, um, I think, planning to be a clinical doctor and ended up being so fascinated by hysteria and by the things that he learned under Charcot that he ended up changing paths entirely and began to really focus on um, hysteria. And that, in turn, sort of led to some of his most famous works and to sort of the evolution of uh, the talking therapy um, that you know he became known for. And in many ways, that really sort of paved the way for mod- what we know now is modern day psychotherapy. So, you know, I think you can attribute, you know, or at least trace some of those very important developments back to this very strange chapter of Charcot's history. So it certainly wasn't all bad, but I was um, very interested in sort of his his approach to women who were clearly sort of traumatized and um, his interest in them, which seemed to be purely clinical at the time, you know, didn't have, um, there wasn't a lot of interest in sort of what was actually causing the trauma, um, or in even addressing the trauma and trying to lessen it. It was really much more about clinically identifying it and, um, you know, studying and categorizing that what he considered to be sort of central symptoms to the disease. Well, let's talk more about the women and the experience that, that they went through at the asylum, um, specifically, your characters, Josephine and Lore, uh, what roles do they play in the novel and and who do they represent historically? Um, Lore is effectively sort of the overview slash narrator character. So she isn't really drawn from anybody historically. She's, I mean, if anything, she's probably more drawn from sort of Brontean heroines, um, you know, such as, you know, those that you sort of find in um, Wuthering Heights or, you know, I listened to Jane Eyre uh, and read it as well, trying to sort of get a sense of a gothic narrating, narrating voice. So she she's really more of kind of the translator of, of that moment and that location for me. Um, although she, you know, her storyline that, you know, she... Uh, just has a very difficult life, loses uh, both of her parents, loses her sister to the state, and has a hysterical breakdown. Um, certainly wasn't uncommon. There were many, many women having, you know, being diagnosed with hysteria at the time. And uh, many women who sort of graduated from the hysteria ward at the Salpetria would remain there and, and continue to work at the asylum because it was a safe place for them to be. It provided board um, and housing and a little bit of money as well. So for many who didn't have other options, it was uh, it was a way sort of into the future. Um, so she's really more of a composite character. Um, I would say Josephine is also kind of a composite character, but she's, she's also drawn in part from um, a character, a true life uh, historical figure named um, Augustine Gliese, uh, who was, uh, had, had a similar sort of experience in that she was, um, viciously raped by uh, an employer uh, when she was about 14 and uh, was brought into the into the asylum in the wake of that um, that trauma 
and um, had it was immediately discovered to be sort of exquisitely sensitive to hypnosis, which was of great interest to Charcot because he considered hypnosis to be a very central tool to evaluating hysteria. He believed that only hysterics could be hypnotized. That was one of his more controversial views, even at the time. Um, so if you could be hypnotized, it, to him, it was an affirmation that you actually did have hysteria. And then he believed that you could reproduce the often chaotic and sort of myriad symptoms of hysteria that in an actual hysterical fit would sort of come piling out in all of these uh, very chaotic ways. And um, But if you if you hypnotize these women, then you could prompt these different symptoms uh, sort of at your own leisure so that you could begin to study them. And so he was able to do this um, very easily and dramatically with Augustine Gliese. And uh, she was also very, very photogenic. Um, the Salpetria, one of the, the sort of technological developments that they were sort of pioneering was uh, they actually had two sort of state-of-the-art uh, photography studios. And they were also trying to examine hysteria by taking photographs of hysterics in the middle of their fits. And they created all kinds of sort of fancy cameras and things to almost do stop motion um, images of, of them as they were seizing and flailing and, um, you know, having their hallucinations. And she was able, you know, they were able to get really remarkable images of her as she was going through these uh, these seizures and convulsions. And um, that also was something that uh, she's very well known for. I mean, she's, those, those images uh, have become pretty famous in their own right. And they were the ones that I actually stumbled upon when I was doing some research on another potential project and suddenly saw them and just was immediately intrigued. I mean, I had to figure out who this person was, what was going on with her. I mean, she was just very, so vivid and um, so uh, just incredibly compelling to me. So that sort of launched the whole process of the book for me. Well, I want to explore that a little more, but before we do, I am curious, can you talk about maybe the the cultural context of this time and place that that allowed for women to be victims of this of these experiments? Uh, sure. I mean, I think it was like many things um, then as now, largely something driven by economic inequality. A lot of the women, the vast majority of the women who come into the Salpetrier uh, during this time are poor, oftentimes indigent. Um, they're also um, oftentimes young, and many of them have been sexually assaulted. And I think that in this time, they were just, um, there was really no outlet for that kind of trauma that, you know, you would, you would be sort of helplessly at the whim of uh, any number of more powerful men um, who would do what powerful men still do today in those situations. Um, and um, they weren't allowed to protest. They weren't allowed to fight back or to suffer or to be marked by those experiences. And so as a result, they, um, they ended up sort of turning their trauma into sort of physical expression. And that's basically what hysteria sort of was. I think at the time it was a kind of um, almost post-traumatic expression um, of damage and pain. Uh, and, you know, they were brought into the Salpetria because it was a place that, you know, you could just put people away pretty easily. Um, and they really had little to no agency once they got there. So they were um, 
you know, they were easy, easy targets, you know, kinds of experiments. You know, if you could sort of become one of the doctor's favorites and could show that you would be pliable and, you know, interesting on stage and um, would respond to their commands, um, hypnotic and otherwise, then there were some advantages that you could gain that you wouldn't be able to otherwise. So in some ways, it was a way for them to actually try to empower themselves um, to be, you know, good hysterics, theatrical hysterics. Um, and, um, you know, I think that was that also became kind of a um, self-perpetuating cycle for many of them. And what were you researching when you came across these images? And then going beyond that, what what was the process like for you of discovering the story and then that kind of diving into it and, and, and finding out just how, um, you know, deep this went, uh, was it emotionally exhausting for you, for you? And when did you ultimately decide, Oh, this is a story I need to tell? Um, it's funny. I, I was researching and I really didn't have a clear narrative focus for it, but I became very interested in Victorian death photography. I don't know if you've ever gone down that particular rabbit hole on the internet, but um, there was this period during sort of the 1860s to 90s when photography was still relatively new and fairly inaccessible to most people. And um, it became very popular to when you had a loved one pass away and you didn't have other images of this, this person. You could bring in um, a death photographer basically, who would come in with a box of makeup and props and stands and stuff. And he would, uh, you know, basically make the body up to look as alive as possible and then would sort of prop it up and then take pictures of it sometimes with other family members around uh, so that you would actually have one last image of this person. And the pictures are absolutely surreal and oftentimes quite disturbing, but also strangely beautiful and emotional. Um, So I was kind of playing around with this idea of like what what kind of story could I write about this? Why I was, you know, I was interested enough to sort of see if I could create some sort of a narrative. And then as I was looking through these images, a picture of uh, Augustine Gliazis came up and she was very clearly not dead, <laughs> very clearly alive and raw and very, very powerful. And I was immediately transfixed um, and found myself sort of pivoting and starting to you know, figuring out who she was and where she came from. And once I found that out and discovered that there was this entire world at the Salpetriere during this period where women were being continually hypnotized and, um, you know, put through these hysterical paces, oftentimes on stage in front of hundreds of people, that became a very compelling story to me. And I I immediately sort of decided that that was something that I wanted to to explore Um, because I just, it seemed like a world that I, I, couldn't even imagine occupying. And oftentimes those are the most interesting worlds for me as a novelist to try to recreate. Um, so I, you know, I went in, I said, if I wrote, wrote a few pages began what ended up being sort of a mountainous <laughs> amount of research um, that uh, was in fact, you know, oftentimes very exhausting. I was also doing a lot of it in the middle of the COVID pandemic. So I was very isolated and sort of struggling as, as everybody was with my own emotional stuff, um, you know, at sort of having the whole outside world stop and be sick and silent. And um, so there were, there were certainly times when I, I felt pretty daunted. Um, I was also, you know, finding 
the story amid the material was also very challenging. Um, you know, because there was so much drama, but trying to kind of harness that drama into a narrative arc that would um, hold up to the drama of the world uh, and also sort of in and of itself be a compelling journey for readers to to go on with me. Um, that took that took several tries, you know, sort of navigating my way in between all of these famous men and all of this very complicated psychological and psychiatric history. Um, so it was it was definitely a long process and oftentimes uh, super super challenging, but also just absolutely riveting for so much of it. I mean, I kept, I just kept discovering things that were absolutely fascinating to me, and that would sort of keep me going. Well, you must have combined a lot of your skills as, as as a writer, as a novelist, as a journalist. Can you talk a little bit about your background and just um, some of the, your accomplishments outside of fiction writing? Uh, sure. Yeah, I I was a I came to fiction relatively late. I was uh, thirty two when I went back to school to write, you know, for my MFA in fiction at Columbia. Prior to that, I'd been a journalist pretty continually for about 10 years. And, um, you know, I was a journalist in lots of different places. I'd I'd spent my junior year abroad in in college in Japan and had been an Asian studies uh, major Asian studies and English major um, at school, and so with a real focus on Japan. So I got my, I sort of cut my reporting teeth uh, in Japan, in Tokyo. And I think I sort of got some good early practice in writing about things I really knew nothing about uh, because I, the, only, the first job and the only job I really could get at, at the um, sort of entree level to journalism was in finance. There was a, it was the 1980s in Japan, so there was a, a big demand for uh, financial writers. And I'd never been particularly interested in finance, I actually came very close to failing econ <laughs> at my college. And um, so I had a big, pretty steep learning curve. And I had to also do a lot of it in Japanese, which was, you know, added even more of a challenge to it. So I think, you know, that that was also difficult, but it was incredibly um, engaging and interesting and exciting at times. And, um, you know, I ended up staying in that financial journalism world for several more years. I, I made my way from wire reporting at the um, at Knight Ritter Financial to the Wall Street Journal, um, first in New York and then back in Tokyo again. And um, I had a brief sort of detour to Bangkok where I sort of interned at the, the Nation, which is a, the second largest English language newspaper there. And, um, and then I went from Tokyo, I sort of really got tired of the financial thing um, and decided to try to do more general news. And so I ended up going to Hong Kong to work in television there. And um, that was also, you know, just writing about things that I, you know, having to do with a lot of research and reaching out to people and and, uh, sort of understanding worlds that I would never have um, had an opportunity to, to really examine or be a part of before. So I think that all of those were really helpful skills for me. They fueled a real interest in, um, in overseas environs, for one thing, um, and also just really got me hooked on research. So when I did finally turn to fiction, I mean, I, I had no idea that I was going to be as interested in historical fiction as I ended up being. I, I came to Columbia with this sort of um, semi-autobiographical coming-of-age 
novel that I was trying to write about a plucky young American reporter in Hong Kong. And, um, you know, I ended up taking a complete detour into something entirely different that required a ton of research. Uh, it was my first novel, The Painter from Shanghai. And it was a kind of similar uh, similar sort of um, origin story in that I, I sort of found myself face to face with an image that absolutely fascinated me. And when I found the story out, that, you know, behind the image, I, I was even more intrigued and felt this real urge to try to kind of go into the world to better understand it and better understand um, the character, you know, that was actually another real life historical figure, Pan Yulong, who was a Chinese post-impressionist. Um, and I, it was kind of, I, I realized I just loved the process. I mean, I loved, writing is incredibly isolating and um, can be very uh, wearing. And for some reason, having sort of breaks to do research, the back and forth between sort of putting things on the screen and then going and researching um, is very um, sort of serendipitous and organic to me. So, um, So I think that those, you know, those things all sort of, led to, you know, my interest in writing this particular kind of story. And, and certainly um, this this novel, The Mad Women of Paris, was probably the most challenging um, iteration of that for me. Well, that all sounds very ambitious. It makes me wonder, <laughs> do you have even broader, grander ambitions moving forward? Do you want to do any kind of like script writing, screenplays, um, things like that? Um, you know, I have been interested in, in sort of exploring other other kinds of um, of writing, and certainly the things that I write do tend to be pretty cinematic in terms of um, you know their scope. So uh, I certainly am interested in exploring that. Um, I'm also interested in exploring other genres, you know, beyond historical fiction. I've been playing around with the idea of doing something that's set sort of in an alternative future as opposed to in sort of an imagined past and that has its own sort of interesting appeal to me. And you talked a lot about um, the research that you do, and I'm curious to know more about your um, your approach to taking research and making it making it into historical fiction. Mm-hmm. What um, like what are the, some of the, the craft elements that you have to consider when translating that? And, and you did talk about this a little bit, but making it into a narrative um, whilst also having integrity for all that research that you did and, and, and want to make sure that it's somewhat accurate. Yeah, I, I think um, there's a couple factors that uh, you need to, to sort of, that I at least try to keep in mind. I mean, the first is that the story needs to stand alone as its own story. Um, it, it's not being dictated by the history. It's being dictated more by human experience and sort of the themes that I um, want to explore. And, you know, one thing I tell students when I, when I teach or, you know, mentor with, with these kinds of projects is you should be able to sit down and basically write that story without using any of the history and have it be compelling. And you have to be really true to that as you're, as you're continuing to sort of add on these different layers and dimensions that the um, historical research can provide. Uh, because it's very easy to be pulled in many, many directions by, you know, the things that you discover as you as you sort of make your way down the path. And there's a real balancing act that I think is involved in 
not letting the history sort of pull you off onto a detour that's going to sort of putter out in terms of um, sort of tension and propulsion. And it's very easy to do that. In fact, I, I think when I read, I read a lot of historical fiction and I, I always feel that's probably one of the biggest pitfalls that, that historical novelists fall into is that they get sort of seduced by this history and sort of forget that they're trying to actually tell a story and that those two things are oftentimes very, very different. Um, and the other thing that has to be balanced really is knowing when to fictionalize and um, when not to. And I think every writer sort of has their own rules for that. But for me, sort of the main guideline is I, I work within sort of the broad strokes of history and I, I try not to change anything, um, you know, that's sort of a major historical event uh, because I think once you do that, you really start to lose your reader's trust. Um, you need to kind of keep history as, unless, of course, you're writing speculative history or, you know, specifically trying to sort of play around with what would have happened if, you know, something else had happened, you know, if, uh, you know, Napoleon had stayed in power or, you know, I mean, all, all, there are all kinds of different things that you can do if you're going down that road. But I think if you're actually trying to recreate a world that may have actually existed, you want to keep your goalposts pretty firm in terms of sort of major historical events. Um, and, uh, you know, you can change things within your own fictionalized story arc, but you, you don't change the major tides of history. So after completing this, this novel, The Mad Women of Paris, and ultimately what is the message? What do you want readers to take away from it? I'm also curious what connections can readers make with the present day? Um, I mean, this is this is the thing that's so fascinating about history for me um, is that you can always make connections to present day. I think that history, you know, I, I can't remember who said it, but the past isn't even past. You know, I mean, I think it's it's the same story being told in different iterations in different ways, and I, I always find. Um, things that speak to the present moment and the stories that I, I set in the past. I think this one is pretty clearly talking to me about, um, you know, the gender inequities in medicine, certainly, um, the ways that women's illnesses are treated differently from men's illnesses, um, you know, these con sort of uh, traditional concepts of, of gender and, and um, hierarchy. and um, you know, I think that the truth was that if, if it had been sort of men who were being largely diagnosed with hysteria, I think you would have, you would have seen very different approaches to the disease, but probably a lot less sort of staged spectacle and more earnest attempts to try to make people better, uh, which was not uh, at all what, what seemed to be happening at this moment. Um, so that's certainly, you know, one parallel that you can draw and you can you can look at any number of women's illnesses today that are um, much slower to be studied. There isn't the funding to study them. Um, there oftentimes um, isn't the, uh, you know, interest in funding them. And um, and there also isn't the credibility that, you know, if a woman says that she's not well, um, there tends to be um, a lot less um, faith that she's actually, you know, actually speaking truthfully about her own conditions. Um, you know, people do tend to sort of uh, assume that the whole idea of the hysterical woman continues to sort of be a trope even today for a reason. So I think that that's, that's certainly 
another thing that, um, you know, seems to be a continuing thread throughout the centuries. Um, although I do think it's, it's, it's clearly getting better now. We still, we still have a long way to go with that. Um, and I'm sorry, what was the second question that you asked? Just what, what's the overall message that, that you want people to take away from this, this novel? I think that the, the overall message is, is really one of empathy, you know, that I think that when people are traumatized and, you know, are trying to express that trauma, I think all too often we don't give people a voice, women in particular, a voice to do that. There are very set strictures for how women in particular are supposed to present in society. I think that, you know, um, we're, we're seeing a lot of dialogue around that today, which I think is a great, a great thing. You know, what does it mean to be a woman who is a woman? Um, you know, and, um, you know, how should women be? Uh, but I think that we still have a long way to go in that. Um, and I think just recognizing the, the very real um, role that sexual assault and trauma continue to play today, I think is very important that um, it happens. It's, it's incredibly broad spread um, and widespread rather. And uh, it, it's something that has a profound effect on anybody who experiences it. And I think that uh, society tends to want to continually downplay that and sort of brush it off and um, not recognize the prevalence of the problem. And, you know, we certainly have seen that play out politically in, in past years on many levels. Um, and I think until we are able to have sort of a more open and empathetic dialogue, you know, about what happens to women in these situations and what the actual impact of that is, um, I think we're, we're not going to see um, significant change, you know, in a way that's healthy. So um, I'd say that that's probably probably one of the, the biggest messages for me. Well, those are all very important messages and just reminds us that how, how valuable what you do is writing these historical novels and revisiting the past and, and bringing to light these things that can spark conversations and um, yeah, bring um, illuminate some issues that, that we still have today, even at, you know, as even though they, have roots in these, these issues so long ago. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. That's, that's in large part what I want people to, to get, you know, from the reading, not necessarily a, a happy, you know, um, sort of amusement park ride through the past, which I think some books can, can certainly provide, but more really thoughtfully engaging with the past and trying to really understand what it can say to us about the present and, and possibly the future. Well, Jennifer, congratulations on your newest novel, The Mad Women of Paris, and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you very much.
Uh, I just have to pause here real quick because I forgot to ask um, how to pronounce the main character. Is it L- Lorraine or? Uh, Lore. Lore, okay. Yeah. 